If you crack open an American history book, it's sure to be filled with founding fathers, bloody wars, and the inventions that brought this country to the industrial age. But there's a whole other world that waits for us in the shadows. Tales of unlikely heroes, world-changing tragedies, and legends that are unique to this country's spirit. So join me, Lauren Vogelbaum, for a tour of American history unlike any other, through a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke's Grim and Mild. Get ready for American Shadows. Listen to American Shadows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What if you could learn from a hundred of the world's most inspiring women? Now you can. Introducing Seneca's 100 Women to Hear, a new podcast brought to you by Seneca Women and iHeartRadio in partnership with P&G. I'm Kim Azzarelli. In celebration of the 100th anniversary of American women getting the vote, we're bringing you the voices of 100 groundbreaking and history-making women. Listen to Seneca's 100 Women to Hear on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The church was a little United Methodist church on Eastland Road, which is right off of Moreland. It was an elderly white congregation in a neighborhood that had transitioned. It had gone on several months when the pastor said, we've got to do something to help the kids in this community. I was 26 years old, had uh, just finishing up my undergraduate studies. And he asked me if maybe you've got some extra time, can you come and help us reach these kids? So all I did was put up a basketball goal in the church parking lot, bought one basketball and went out there just myself and just started bouncing the ball in the parking lot. Just bouncing the ball. Did it for a couple hours, went inside next day, same thing, same time just bouncing the ball. I thought maybe if I'm consistent. And sure enough, a couple of kids showed up from the neighborhood. One week, two weeks, three weeks went on, and pretty soon, before we knew it, we had 100 kids. The tragedy began to gain more and more publicity. Our program began to get more attention. But it was sad to see the kids, and as, you know, adolescents, they don't want to show their fear. They would joke with each other, you know, you're going to get snatched and somebody's coming, you know, to your house and, you know, but you could tell, you know, deep down inside, they were, they were really frightened. I got the feeling that they knew they were in something together, you know, uh, confronting this serious danger and they kind of came together and around the program and, and saw me as the leader made them feel good to be a community, you know, to be a group. There was safety in our group, and uh, everybody, whether they admit it or not, responds to love. I think that we've made some progress uh, with a long way yet to go. I can see a tremendous difference in the uh, prejudices I grew up with being born in the mid-50s. I remember the assassination of Dr. King. And I remember the kids in my elementary school saying that they were glad that he had been killed. 
what a terrible thing for a child to say. But that's what they were living. That's what they'd been taught. Uh, yeah, I remember those things. And um, unfortunately, still see some of those same prejudices that are alive, you know, even today in our beautiful city, although we've come a long way. There are still bigotries alive, not only here in the South, but I imagine throughout this country. Honestly, I think perhaps we hide them a little better than uh, we used to, but they're still there. I found acceptance in those kids and their families, and uh, together we, we made a difference in that one little part of Atlanta. So uh, thankful for uh, Silver Linings. That was a man named Bill Burnham. As a young man in the 80s, he saw how scared these kids were. The victims in this case are the children. And that should never be forgotten. Because this story is so complex, for years, people have argued whether or not they got the right guy. From everyone I've talked to, there's been a lot of disagreement over whether Wayne Williams is the Atlanta monster. Many people feel that he's guilty. His stories just don't really add up. He fit the FBI profile to a T. And depending on how you looked at it, after he was arrested, the murder stopped. But some people seem to think this was a huge conspiracy against Wayne Williams, but with very little evidence to back up those claims. But the question isn't as simple as, did he do it? The question is, what did he do? Did he kill Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne, the two adults he was convicted for? Maybe he did. But what about the kids? Did he kill the kids too? Did he kill all of them? Even though people are still very divided over Wayne Williams himself, there's one common thread that everyone seems to agree on. It was time for all this to end in the city of Atlanta, and someone had to go away for this, and Wayne Williams was that guy. Wayne still claims his innocence, and from our very first phone call, he promised to provide strong evidence to prove that. I want this podcast to be the final debate over Wayne Williams and the Atlanta child murders, and now that my investigation is in full swing, I'm going to put everything out on the table. If Wayne Williams has anything credible to say, now's the time to hear it. I've been incarcerated since 1981 in connection with the Atlanta murders. It was a situation that few people understood then, and today even fewer people understand the truth about what happened, and probably even more so about what didn't happen. Due to the political climate and the fear and all of the uncertainty about what happened, the police and authorities were just anxious to arrest anybody that they could, and that person just happened to be me. Sadly, it's taken all these years for me to finally get the case brought back to the forelight so people can see the truth about what happened. The fact that not only am I an innocent man, but that the people involved in this, the families, the city, and the nation deserve an answer. One of the main objectives for us is to make people aware of what really happened during events before the trial as well as after the trial and they continue today. I don't think few people realize I was never convicted in connection with any of the child murders. I was charged for the deaths of two adults whose murders were, were actually unrelated. Furthermore, we were prevented from bringing out a lot of evidence that could have helped me during the trial. We're talking about the existence of other suspects, we're talking about physical evidence, including 
fiber evidence from Caucasian suspects and others who we know were involved in some of these cases, as well as false testimony about the synthetic fibers that the FBI presented during the trial. I'm referring not only to setting the factual record straight, but telling of the story behind the scenes about the hurt and the emotional pain that lingers to this day. I've done several interviews over the years, but none have addressed the full context of what this story is about. In Atlanta, another body was discovered today, the 23rd. At police task force headquarters, there are 27 faces on the wall, 26 murdered, one missing. We do not know the person or persons that are responsible, therefore we do not have the motive. From Tenderfoot TV and How Stuff Works in Atlanta, like 11 other recent victims in Atlanta, Rogers apparently was asphyxiated. Atlanta is unlikely to catch the killer unless he keeps on killing. This is Atlanta Monster. According to Wayne Williams, the story begins with that infamous night on the James Jackson Parkway Bridge. Wayne first described a rather convoluted story about the timing sequence of the bridge that night. FBI is killing it. Yeah, I got it. He's coming towards me. Stop. That's the timing sequence they testified to in court. There's the contradiction. During that sequence, there's no way any car could have been going south on the bridge, turn into the gravel park lot, and turn back north. That's an absolute impossibility. He's saying that according to police testimony, the timing doesn't make sense. In what he described as a matter of seconds, the police recruit below the bridge heard the splash, shined his light on the water, didn't see a body and only saw ripples, then radioed to the other officers, who then saw Wayne in his car turn around in a gravel parking lot just moments later, heading the opposite way on the bridge. That car mine had to have been traveling north the entire time of the sequence. Bottom line is there was no splash. If you take the bridge out of the equation, Wayne Williams is not in prison, right? This is Vincent Hill, a law enforcement analyst and former police officer. But more significantly, Vincent is an expert of sorts on Wayne's case. If Wayne was not on that bridge, either the case would have been solved a different way or it would still be unsolved. Take that bridge out of the equation and what do you have? I guess you can argue that, the, that it put Wayne next to the body, right? I mean, he's on the bridge, they hear a splash. Two days later, there's a body found. That morning, while four officers sat quietly under the South Cobb Drive bridge, one of them, an Atlanta recruit, heard a splash. Why do you think they stopped your car that night? You gotta remember, that was the last night of the stakeout. That was the last day they were staking out in the bridge. So I'm sure they were probably, you know, anxious to stop something and just make an account for the time. The police recruit, Bob Campbell, was stationed below the bridge, and he's the only one who heard the splash that night. And Campbell probably, something probably startled him, and he probably made up the story just to justify the existence of being on a stakeout. The point is that the statements they said about the stop and what happened at the bridge are correct. The only one that is not correct in that is what Campbell and Jacob said. He claimed that most of the FBI statements about the bridge were in fact true, except for two major points, the first being recruit Bob Campbell's account of the splash, and the recruit Jacob's accounts of the timing. The second major point was over Wayne's strange story about a girl named Cheryl Johnson. The only confusion in the statements 
was over the thing on the telephone number in Cheryl Johnson. He tried to persuade the jury he really was out near a bridge that night looking for a Cheryl Johnson, who still remains a mystery to this trial. The state implied he fabricated the story, but Williams didn't budge from it, claiming the woman simply gave him a wrong number and wrong address. When the FBI asked what he was doing out there, Wayne said he was looking for a woman named Cheryl Johnson, who had scheduled an in-person interview with him that morning. He told the police he was out checking the address. That night, Wayne gave police an alleged phone number for Cheryl Johnson. But later, when they tried to call the number, it didn't work. It didn't belong to anyone. But Wayne says the FBI called the wrong number, and the reason was his handwriting. The number was at 9347766. You'll see when you get my writing, I'm going to send you some samples of it. It was 434. My fours and my nines look alike because I closed the loop at the top of them. The FBI claimed Cheryl Johnson wasn't real, but Wayne Williams agrees. So, Cheryl Johnson, when did she originally call you, and what did she say? Well, well, she she originally did not call me. She called my mother, and my mother left a note. I talked to her the day before, and I and I figured she was a prank call thing. We were doing public auditions. Uh, my music company, Over Entertainment, for some of the actors we had. The ads we running on the radio, and television stations, and in the newspapers for you know in 1980. You know, the auditions were all over the radio and TV, and that's how she found out and got phone number. And like I said, we, we did probably, we took maybe about 800, 900 calls and probably did, we screened those down, me and my two assistants, and we probably did about 150 actual interviews and auditions out of that. I even tell the police, I said, the only reason I went out to check the address was because I felt it was a fake address. That's why I went out to check it in the first place. He said as a talent scout, he received hundreds of calls during that time, and that every so often he would get a fake caller, and Cheryl Johnson was likely one of them. And this is something to think about. How, why in the world, if somebody was a killer killing people, why would they be doing public auditions? That doesn't make sense. So why was Wayne out checking this address at 2 in the morning, when he was scheduled to meet with her just a few hours later? That never made sense to me. I mean, me being a 45-year-old man, if I'm out at 2 in the morning, if I'm not working and I'm looking for someone's house, <laughs> let's be honest, I know what I'm going to do at 2 in the morning, and it's not to talk record contracts. Did the FBI or the police ever find her in real life? No, and, and, and I told them, you probably wasted your time because I'm not even sure that's her name. That was just the name that she gave. We were doing public auditions. A lot of people gave fake names and fake addresses. That was why I went out to screen. So I think all the, the hoopla over Cheryl Johnson is meaningless. You know, she was obviously a prank cop. So maybe Wayne was out getting ready to meet someone and got lost. I don't know. Wayne likes to embellish things. I don't know why, but again, I think that was part of Wayne's downfall. Regardless if he told the truth or not, I don't think the outcome would have been different simply because he was on the bridge. Do you regret being on the bridge that night? If you could go back and change it, would you not go that way? Well, hey, let me put it to you like this. I'm the type of person, okay, uh, I'm liable to change my mind at any given time. Everybody said, well, do you think it was a conspiracy? Were they out to get you ahead of time? No, that was a conspiracy 
only after I became a suspect and the FBI get involved. Nobody knew I was going to take that route home, not even me that night. That was a spur of the minute issue. The only thing I regret was, was going out, period, that night. You know, I should have just took my butt to bed and waited until in the morning. Do you think that if you didn't go out that night, that you would not be in jail right now? Absolutely. No question on that. If they had to ask the same questions that you're asking me right now, I wouldn't be sitting here. Bottom line. Living in Fort Hood, Texas, my dad was military. You know, even then that story was national news about these black kids being murdered in Atlanta. I remember my mom to this day telling me not to go outside, you know, past dark, even in Fort Hood, Texas, in Colleen, because they were killing these little kids. Wayne Williams got arrested and got convicted, and that was pretty much it. And supposedly the murder stopped, and that's what I took it for, you know, as a small child, you know, it's just... You trust what the police say, you trust what the courts say, and that, that was pretty much it. You know, but as I got older, uh, especially when I became a police officer and a private investigator, and I realized this keyword called evidence, then my mindset started changing about the entire case. First, we can't say that the child murders were solved because Wayne was convicted of killing Nathaniel Cater and uh, Jimmy Ray Payne, which were adults. So we still have all of these child murders basically unsolved because you can't say it's solved if you only convicted him of killing two people. Wayne's a very intelligent guy. I think Wayne's downfall back then was he embellished a lot. Wayne wanted to be the center of attention. He was calling his own press conferences, uh, which just made him a bigger target in the media, right? You know, a lot of people that were innocent of this would have just said, I had nothing to do with it, and that's it. But I'm convinced it was something totally different that happened. Williams bluntly stated the police version of the now famous bridge incident was wrong, a lie. He claimed he wasn't driving slow, that he didn't turn around in a parking lot next to the bridge, that he did not throw anything into the river. The state contends that loud splash was the body of Nathaniel Cater hitting the water. Although prosecutors had most of the pieces that night in May, it still lacked the essential part of the puzzle. Someone actually seen Williams' car stopped on the bridge, or better yet, the suspect throwing a body from the structure. Could be something, could be nothing. Could have been a bird taking off. It could have been a beaver. Could have been anything. You got police down there with flashlights immediately, and they see nothing? So that would suggest that Nathaniel Cater's body, as soon as it hit the water, just floated out of sight, like a speedboat. Splash, you shine your lights. No, I don't see anything. Why not? If it floated down the river and you found it two days later, why wouldn't you see it as it's floating down the river right after it splashed? If you heard the splash and you thought it was a body, why didn't you send divers down there immediately? Dr. Blackwelder was there during the trial, so I asked him what he knew about the splash. The cadet that was under the bridge heard a splash and it's had flashlights and all that. They shine around, but they never saw anything. So they don't. They said it could have been a beaver because there were beavers in that river. It could have been a beaver slapping its tail on the water, or it could have been a body that was thrown off the bridge into the water. But he heard a splash. I asked Popcorn with the FBI, what was his take? Two cadets under the bridge, two regular officers in chase cars. They were in tents underneath the bridge. And the guy that heard the splash had been a high school swimmer. And he knew what the sound of a body hitting the water. And he said, that's a body hitting the water. It was a splat. 
As you know, if you jump off a diving board and you spread eagle and hit the water, you splat. And that's what he heard. And they looked, you know, to see what was in the water. They never could see anything floating in the water. And then they brought a hydrologist in from the Corps of Engineers, and, and somebody testified there were a lot of there were a lot of beavers in the river. If it pops its tail in the water, it'll make a splash. So, a body hitting the water sounds like it would be much louder than a beaver. We've done that. I did. I, we did that when I was in school. We would throw bodies. They would be dummies, but we'd make sure that it weighed the same amount by using sand and things like that. Because a beaver's tail was flat. It'd be just like hitting with a boat paddle, and a body wouldn't. If it was Nathaniel Cater at his stature, wouldn't someone else have heard that? It's like going to a pool, right? You may be 20 yards away, but you can hear people diving off the diving board. So this one guy is the only one that heard this? It's not even logical. Wasn't he like 150, 160? It's a loud splash, man. If they're spread out the way they say they were, there's just no way only one person heard it. That was a warning signal to say that danger was around, let's say me. Beavers take refuge here whenever they are alarmed. We should start a podcast. Yeah, we've all said it. But when it comes time to make it a reality, we get stuck. Well, here's some good news. With Spreaker, all you need to start a podcast is a microphone and a good idea. Spreaker handles the recording, management, distribution, and monetization of your podcast, allowing you to focus on making a podcast. Whether you're discussing the latest moves in the tech sector or just your dating life, Spreaker gives you tools to make your podcast a hit and professional insights about who is listening and where. And as your podcast dream grows, Spreaker only becomes more useful, letting you upload and schedule multiple episodes at the same time, push to multiple platforms, and customize RSS feeds. But what about making money? With Spreaker, monetization is as easy as checking a few boxes. So next time someone says to you, we should start a podcast, Say yes and let Spreaker handle the rest. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. Citizen Critic is the podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of movies and television like Tiger King, The Shining, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The movie should have been reduced to 90 minutes. Even then it would have sucked because there is no tie-in with the characters, really. Yeah, because you dropped off 90 minutes of it. <laughs> Next time I make a movie that I can edit in my own head and have it make sense. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I can't help but think a splash from a beaver's tail would sound a whole lot different from a splash from a fully grown human body. So I decided to test it out. The team at How Stuff Works helped me put together the whole experiment. The best option we had was Rescue Randy. Randy is an adult-sized mannequin used for simulations and training for emergency personnel. So when dropped, Randy would fall like a human body. Accurate weight distribution and everything. How do we try to recreate this sound? So what we want to do is drop something off the James Jackson Parkway Bridge. Something that is roughly the same size and shape of a human body to see what kind of sound it makes, how loud it is, if we can hear it. If we can. What we're trying to do is find something that we can drop off the bridge. And we've been kind of racking our brains trying to figure out 
how to approximate a human body. It's not something you can just go to the hardware store and find. And we've, we've actually gone through many iterations of this. Like originally we were thinking we might want to try to actually build a body out of like wooden dowels and duct tape and like packing material. And we got kind of far down that path, but then decided, you know, it was just, it was not going to really be as flexible as a body the way we wanted it. You know, we were thinking, well, maybe, you know, like something like a emergency rescue might have some dummies and, and things like that. And so we did actually find a fireman's dummy, and they use these in um, training and, like, competitions for firemen. It just so happens that the dummy that they make has very similar proportions, both height and weight, to the deceased Nathaniel Cater. Randy is uh, a very large gentleman. Um, he, you know, he does weigh 145 pounds, and you know, hearing that, it seems like yeah, that's doable. But it's dead weight. You know, it, it, the arms flail and the legs flail, and so trying to pick up that mass is actually harder than you would expect. Pick up one of his arms or legs or something. Oh wow! Ooh, that is, yeah. Very correct, weight-wise. You know, if your adrenaline's up, you're going to be able to lift more than you normally Exactly. Do. What's the return policy on this? Can't return it if it's wet. So this is ours. So we all kind of took turns um, trying to pick Randy up and to varying degrees of success. But, um, yeah, it was a bit of a hassle. Yeah, it's it's not easy. I mean, I Tyler, you could, you were able to pick him up. I really wasn't. But, um, yeah, it's way more difficult than you might expect. How close is he in height and weight to Nathaniel Cater? So um, the coroner's report and some of the other reporting had Nathaniel Cater's um, height at 5'11 and uh, weighed at 146 pounds. And the Rescue Randy um, dummy that we ordered has uh, a height of 6 feet and weighs 145 pounds. So we're really in that range of where we want to be. It actually fits quite well. The bridge actually straddles two county lines. Fulton County on the south side and Cobb County on the north side. So we have to close the bridge down. We have to get permits from both counties. And on top of that, we found out that we also have to coordinate with the state Department of Transportation. They have to approve it as well. You know, closing a road down is one thing, but dropping a body into the Chattahoochee River is a whole different thing. So we've been coordinating with Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of Natural Resources, all these different groups to try to, you know, figure out who we need to essentially get permission from. Wayne spoke of a child sex ring that was operating out of a house on Gray Street in Atlanta. He told me that he believed many of these child murders were related to this sex ring. We know that another six cases were involved in a homosexual ring going on in Atlanta, a black homosexual ring. Vincent Hill has spent the last several years looking into this theory too, and he believes it has some serious merit. If you look at old records and old police reports, Uncle Tom Terrell, his friend Jerry Thornton, Larry Marshall, Jerry Thornton told investigators 10 of the victims used to hang out at that house, that they would have sex with little boys. And men would come to that house to pay for sex with these little boys. 
So how do you put that on Wayne? It's been learned that investigators have now found this man, Tom Terrell, and questioned him today about his role in some type of homosexual ring operated out of this home in northwest Atlanta. That ring apparently involved the latest child victim, Timothy Hill, and through recent findings may have linked together several other children on the task force list. Terrell knows this man, Larry Marshall, now in a Connecticut jail on armed robbery charges. Investigators also want to question Marshall, but so far he is fighting extradition back to Georgia. The next best thing is this man sitting in a detective's car this morning. How many of the murdered children have you seen around here? About 10 of them. I told men that they... Jerry Thornton, Larry Marshall's former roommate, identified 10 of the murder victims from pictures shown him by a police investigator, children he's seen in the neighborhood. Among them, 13-year-old Timothy Hill, 11-year-old Patrick Baltazar, and 15-year-old Joseph Bell. This morning, Terrell's house on Gray Street was empty. Unlike recent weeks, when neighbors said at any given time, several boys would be hanging out here. Terrell is an admitted homosexual who says one of the victims, Timothy Hill, spent the night at his house a day before he disappeared. He was here on 12th grade. He was supposed to come back on the, on the 13th, and that was my birthday. But, but he, he didn't, didn't come he back. Didn't, he ain't been back. Yeah, if he did, I didn't see him, and I haven't seen him since. Back in the 80s, no one was saying, oh, I'm openly gay. And you definitely didn't want to be known as a city that's trading boys for sex. But if you, if you have 10 people that have been identified at one house where guys were coming in, paying these boys for sex, they were giving them drugs, they were doing all these other types of things, you have all of these people coming to this house trading for sex, how do you put those 10 bodies on Wayne Williams? So you tie all these victims to Wayne, but you can't. 34-year-old Larry Marshall, now behind bars in Connecticut, is a known homosexual. He used to hang around this neighborhood on Gray Street. Tom Terrell, who is also a homosexual, said 13-year-old Timothy Hill also used to hang out here. And Larry and Timothy knew each other. Larry told you he had Timmy over to his house. Uh-huh, he's a game there. Mm-hmm. What do they do over there? I don't know. They don't be doing nothing but drinking and talking. But you do know for a fact that Larry knew Timmy. He ain't know him. Patrick Baltazar went missing after being seen at the Omni Hotel. Patrick Baltazar, from the Omni to his house to Larry Marshall's house, was about 1.8 miles. Baltazar would have had to pass Larry Marshall's house on his way home. He's walking home right past Larry Marshall's house, who's associated with this pedophile who's selling these boys for sex. Marshall is believed to have known at least three of the victims, Patrick Baltazar, Timothy Hill, and Joseph Bell, who is still missing. If you're 10, 11 years old and you say, yeah, I'm going to go tell my mom what you're doing, the heck you are, because I don't want to go to jail for rape of a child. So I'll just kill you. When Patrick Baltazar was found, one of the uh, witnesses that morning, she said she saw a male white in a green station wagon, you know, just lurking around, like towards the wooded area where Patrick was found. Who was the white guy in the green station wagon? Baltazar was with a 10-year-old friend, playing near these railroad tracks near the Baltazar home on Foundry Street. Baltazar's friend told Jack Perry a big man in a car started following them and tried to get them to come get in the car with him. Perry taped part of the conversation with the young friend of Patrick Baltazar. He said, come here, you two boys. And Patrick started to the car. I grabbed him from behind. I said, you don't know who that man is. And then when he was gone up the hill, 
He said, I'll be back. Then man Patrick ran out and tried to get his tag number, but we couldn't get it. They called the task force from this phone near the key shop on Northside Drive, according to the young man who was with Patrick Baltazar. But after Patrick and his friend made the call to the task force, they didn't hang around waiting for police. They split up, and Patrick was not seen again. We don't know if police sent a squad car to this area, but Jack Perry says he has learned the task force talked with Patrick Baltazar's friend just two days ago. Uh, I'm sure that the task force has the same information, so uh, uh, I hope it's beneficial to them. I asked Jack why it would take more than a month to follow up on talking to someone who had phoned asking for help, particularly when one of the two children who had called turns up dead. Uh, it's surprising that uh, they would let this thing go this long. Uh, you know, you want to follow up every lead that you have, and I think it's just a breakdown of communications. Jack Perry also has learned that Patrick Baltazar may have intentionally gone back to the area where the man tried to pick him up because Patrick was a street hustler and believed he could get the license number and maybe he could collect the reward. There's no coincidence that the FBI had Tom Terrell's house, Larry Marshall's house, under surveillance for weeks because of this alleged sex ring. If you follow the trail, you can't call the coincidence that Patrick Baltazar lives here, Larry Marshall lives here, the house where all the sexual activity was here, which also tied to 10 other victims, and you can't say, well, it had nothing to do with anything. It's impossible. In the many years of Vincent's research, he's found a recurring story in the FBI files. A story about a vehicle that didn't belong to Wayne Williams. A Blue Nova. I know there was talk about a Blue Nova, which Wayne didn't drive a Blue Nova. Why didn't police do a motor vehicle record search to tie this, this Blue Nova to somebody other than Wayne? The case about the Blue Nova, the guy had an afro with no glasses. Have you ever seen Wayne without glasses? Other than his booking photo, have you ever seen Wayne Williams without glasses? Wayne can't see. So who is this guy with the afro with no glasses? Couldn't have been Wayne. You know, back then, a lot of people said every black person looked alike. We're talking 1979. I had an afro in 1979, right? My dad had an afro in 1979. Who didn't have an afro that was black in 1979, right? That was... Pre the Jerry Curl, when Michael Jackson made that famous, people were walking around with afros. So it very well could have been someone that resembled Wayne because he looked just like that. He had an afro. The description wasn't a white guy with red hair. It was a black guy with an afro. That was probably 90% of the black population of Atlanta in 1979-1980. This whole time, I've been wondering if there were any kids that got away, that were almost abducted. And if so... Were they still around? That's what I met Rodney. He's an Atlanta native, a child living here during the time of the murders. Rodney firmly believes that when he was 16, he was almost a victim of the Atlanta child murderer. He shared with me his chilling firsthand account. I was 15, not old enough to work, but Six Flags accepted a fake ID, which you could get downtown at that time, and put me to work. So I rode the bus from my neighborhood in southeast Atlanta 
to downtown, there was, at the time, a MARTA direct shuttle from downtown to Six Flags. And all it did was go back and forth from this stop downtown to Six Flags, no other stops in between. I would change buses, get on the Six Flags shuttle, go to work, get on that shuttle to come back to downtown to go home and get on my, my bus, which was the 34 Gresham. That particular day, for whatever reason, by the time I'd gotten off the 34 Gresham, walked across from the end of the line and, and to the Six Flags shuttle, I had missed it. And as I'm standing there, this guy approaches me. He was not tall, about five, six, Ish. He was in his mid-twenties. He was clean-shaven, which was unusual for a black male in the 70s. And he had a short afro, had a fairly soft voice. So he didn't come across very masculine. He just came off as, you know, a nice guy. He approaches me and he's, he's just basically chatting with me, asking if I'm okay. Yeah, I missed my bus. You know, I've got to get to work. And, you know, my recollection is that he almost immediately offers me a ride. I'm going that way. It's no problem. You want a ride? Drove a Blue Nova. The Blue Nova was, was parked on that same street just down the block. It wasn't far. It was just walking down the sidewalk. I got in his car, and off we went. To go to Six Flags from downtown, one would go directly to I-20, which is, you know, maybe a mile or so from that spot. What he did was drove on surface streets heading north away from I-20. On that ride, as he was talking to me, he offered me a joint. I had never done drugs, and to this day, I don't know if there was anything in it or I was just new to that and, and, and just had gotten really, really high. I mean, frankly, I, I smoked marijuana years after that and was very familiar with it, but there was something about that high that was, it wasn't just marijuana. There was something else in it. During the course of that ride, he started to fondle me as he was driving over my pants. And I recall just kind of staring down at what he was doing, just not knowing what was going on, not really communicating with him. You know, at 15, I it, had no idea what was going on. As we continued down Fulton Industrial, I knew that he would get onto I-20 because we were one exit away from Six Flags. Either he'd get onto I-20, go over into Cobb County, drop me off at Six Flags, or he would continue down Fulton Industrial, which if he passed under I-20 heading south, it was no man's land. Industrial warehouses, nothing. And as we were at a traffic light, maybe two blocks from the entrance to I-20, it, it was like a do or die moment. And as we were sitting at that traffic light, just out of nowhere, I decided I'm gonna jump out. And I grabbed the door, unlatched the door and opened it and tried to bolt out of the car. Now, I didn't have on a seatbelt, but he had the seat cover over his vinyl seats. It had a hole in it. And my, my Afro pick that was in my back pocket, which was the way we carried him then, got hung up in his seat cover. 
and I'm struggling at this light to undo myself from this seat cover as the door is open trying to escape. And he didn't try to stop me. He just said to me as I'm struggling, and it was the most eerie, sort of calm thing. Bye, Rodney. And I got out of the car and started heading back in the opposite direction, back up the hill toward a bank that I knew was the sort of the last stop for a MARTA bus line. I was, I was really out of it, really disoriented, looking out for him to see if he had turned around to come back in that direction. I, he didn't, he continued on. And I basically just laid on the grass in front of this bank, waiting on a murder bus to come. And finally one did. Got on it, went back downtown, got on another bus to go to a relative's house, to my aunt's house, and kind of slept it off uh, during the afternoon. Just kind of slept. Never told anyone about it. I am convinced that had I stayed in the car, we would not have gone onto I-20. We would have continued straight south on Fulton Industrial, which you know would have led into that no man's land outside of Southwest Atlanta. And I'm convinced that the way that that happened at that time, that this guy has some responsibility for some of these murders, if not all of them. You think that you would have been a victim? I'm sure of it. It was, it was an odd, disturbing thing that happened, but it didn't occur to me until I was an adult and, and, and had knowledge of the, you know, the child murders in general. It didn't dawn on me that, hey, that situation was more than what it seemed to be. And I started connecting the dots to other things that had happened. As the years went by, understanding what went on, you know, what that whole thing about the Atlanta child murders was about and the details of the investigation. And, you know, it became clear to me that my experience was related to it. You know, by the time I had that realization, though, the investigation was over. You know, we're talking about, you know, mid to late 80s. And so, you know, what's the point? What's the way I thought about it? In my mind, the authorities had found their man, the person they intended to put it all on, and, you know, what's the point of me seeking out someone who cared in law enforcement to tell my story? What's the point of that? So when I came across this podcast and, you know, um, you guys were, were looking for information, yeah, I decided to offer it. It's like, okay, I've got something to offer here. I, I still don't think law enforcement is interested. I, in my mind, I think they consider this a closed case. I could be wrong, but that was the way I always looked at it. They were looking to close it and end it then. And I, you know, I know of no one in law enforcement who would be interested in reopening or re-examining any evidence around this. So, you know, why, why spend time seeking out someone who would want to hear what I would have to say? Do you think the man who picked you up that day was Wayne Williams? No, absolutely not. Positive of that. He sounds similar in description. Yes, similar. Similar height, same hair. Clean shaven. The photos I've seen of Wayne Williams from that time, he had blemishes on his face that this guy didn't have. 
So just, uh, and the shape of his face was different. This guy was, uh, had a slimmer build, more of an oval-shaped face, different in more ways than he was the same. I'll put it that way. Allie Wentworth. You know, I'm not a truthsayer, a therapist, or an advice columnist. I'm not even particularly sage, but I do know a thing or two about a thing or two, and I've lived those things or two or three, and consequently fallen on my face and occasionally been enlightened. So join me for Go Ask Allie. For this season, I'll probe all the questions about growing a teenager in a pandemic. Go Ask Allie premieres Thursday, August 20th, with all new episodes releasing every other Thursday. Listen to Go Ask Alley on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Jason McIntyre. Join me every weekday morning on my podcast, Straight Fire with Jason McIntyre. This isn't your typical sports pod, pushing the same tired narratives down your throat every day. Straight Fire gives you a level of authenticity you just don't get in sports media today. Honest opinions on all the biggest sports headlines, accurate stats to help you win big at the sports book and direct conversations with all the best guests. Look, I know what sports fans want. You want the fluff, the lists, the hot takes, but I give you what you need. I can't say that I'm going to be right all the time, but unlike the rest of these shock jocks, I'm always real. Let me tell you something. Patrick Mahomes is not the Michael Jordan of football, but he is the Steph Curry. And you know what else? Giannis pulling a Kevin Durant and leaving the small market bucks to build a super team would be great for the NBA. These are just the facts, folks. Do yourself a favor and listen to Straight Fire with Jason McIntyre on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The night of our bridge experiment had arrived. At around midnight, we all headed out to the James Jackson Parkway Bridge and planned to drop Rescue Randy right at 2 a.m. The same time they heard the splash. Uh, do you hear my voice? There you are. This is Tyler, over. Do you want me to stay down here or come back up, over? All right, so um, Casey and Alex, come down to you to follow Payne with the camera. Okay, I'll stay down here to uh, get them safely to the spot. Yeah, that sounds good. So we want to get a camera on Payne as quick as possible, then Chandler will um, have his camera up here. And it's one o'clock now, and I'm hoping we can do the drop right at two-ish. Okay, that sounds good. Careful, can do it. Kind of sneak right here. Pull your truck yeah. down yeah. where that Georgia Power sign is, and then we could at least walk him up there and get the dummy onto the back of your truck just to get it back here quicker. Does that make sense? But yeah, we're kind of approaching things as if we might not get a chance to do it again. It's, I mean, it wobbles a bit, but it's it's in the the play of the joints. I don't think it's like the base feels stable. Yeah. 
Atlanta Monster will be a 10-episode podcast, so there's four episodes left. Here's a preview of what's to come. One of my attorneys, Lynn Watley, received a package on his doorstep. It was an anonymous package. It contained hundreds of GBI files about a classified investigation into white supremacist involvement in the Atlanta killings. It also contained several tape-recorded confessions. Some of the Klansmen admitted that they were involved in the murder of some of the Michigan murder cases. I don't want to tell anything because my wife right now is real nervous. We've been through this before. My name was put out there and it was a scary ordeal. Family spent a few weeks in a hotel just, just out of being scared. And I don't know you from Adam. for a long time that I've known about. I don't know how you want to go about this, Payne. You can always come here to the office that we have at Punk. I'd rather not. You wouldn't think here in this little sleepy town that he was any kind of a monster or he certainly didn't act like it. Until he drank and then he got the eyes of Charles Manson. I don't know. I don't know where it should go from here. I know that there were some wrongs that should probably be righted. There's family still suffering. Anybody out there who thinks that Wayne Williams didn't do all this by himself is correct. I only know that from the mouth of the devil. I'm sorry that I did not come, come forth sooner. Atlanta Monster is an investigative podcast told week by week, with new episodes every Friday, a joint production between How Stuff Works and Tenderfoot TV. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Audio archives, courtesy of WSB News Film and Videotape Collection, Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. For the latest updates, please visit atlantamonster.com or follow us on social media. One last thing. We've set up an Atlanta Monster tip line. 
Anyone with information, leads, or personal accounts pertaining to the Atlanta child murders can call us and leave a message. The number is 1-833-285-6667. Again, that's 1-833-285-6667. Thanks for listening. Can I show you something? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, now this, uh, you guys that, good there? that metal part. Okay, uh, this metal part was not that there. That was not there. No, uh uh-uh. uh. It wasn't there, huh? Action. No, that, that, it was just uh, concrete up, up about this high, probably. Yeah, you wouldn't think it'd sound like a... I would think that if I was out there listening, that I could tell the difference between a a beaver and a body, but I've never heard a beaver hit it, so I don't don't know what they sound like, but a beaver's tail wouldn't be near as big as uh, uh, the body of a man, and you would think it could probably tell. You can go from, I should start a podcast, to actually starting a podcast with Spreaker. Spreaker's tools allow you to record, manage, distribute, and monetize any podcast idea, whether it's about your business or even your cat. And as your podcast grows, Spreaker helps you manage your success and even monetize it. That means all you need to get started is a microphone and a really good idea. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together and we get into a room and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.